ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then, we're on the topic of cupping when fasting. What is the ruling on cupping when fasting? Cupping, everybody knows, is the extraction of blood done through suction in those cups, hence they call it cupping. When you take some blood out of yourself, is that permissible when fasting? Or does it break your fast? So that is what we're going to discuss now. There are three main hadith that we want to mention here from Bulughul Maram. You have to understand all three hadith carefully in order to be able to come to a proper understanding of this issue. So bear in mind all of these narrations one by one carefully. Three hadith. Hadith number one is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma. He says, Ihtajama al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa huwa muhrim وَاحْتَجَمَ وَهُوَ صَائِمٌ That the Prophet وسلم, had the cupping done whilst he was in ihram and he had the cupping done another time whilst he was fasting. And that hadith is in Al-Bukhari. That the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in ihram once, doing umrah or hajj. He was in ihram yet, hadn't finished hajj or umrah yet. During that, at some point, got cupping done. And then in the hadith it says, he had the cupping done when fasting also on another occasion. And this is in Al-Bukhari. So hadith number one seems to be indicating that it is permissible to get cupping done whilst fasting. Because hadith number one here of Ibn Abbas in Al-Bukhari indicates that the Prophet ﷺ himself had cupping done when he was fasting. Hadith number two though. Hadith number two. عن شداد بن أوس رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أتى على رجل بالبقيع وهو يحتجم في رمضان فقال أفطر الحاجم والمحجوم Hadith number two of Shaddad ibn Aus, he says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came across a man 
in Baqiyah, just next to where the graveyard is, he came across a man there who was getting cupped. Somebody was cupping him. So the Prophet ﷺ said, أَفْطَرَ الْحَاجِمُ وَالْمَحْجُومِ He said, the one doing the cupping and the one getting it done to him, both of them, their fasts are broken. So this hadith, hadith number two, seems to indicate the complete impermissibility of cupping when fasting. Because here when the Prophet ﷺ saw the two men, one of them doing the cupping for the other one, he said, both of you, your fasts are broken for doing the cupping. So hadith number one, it said the Prophet ﷺ himself got the cupping done whilst he was fasting. It's in Bukhari too. Hadith number two, the Prophet ﷺ saw the two men, one of them doing the cupping for the other one. He said, both of your fasts are broken. So we have two different hadith so far. Then we have hadith number three. Hadith of Anas ibn Malik. He said, أَوَّلُ مَا كُرِهَةِ الْحِجَامَةِ لِلصَّائِمِ أَنَّ جَعْفَرِ بْنَ بِطَالِبِ احْتَجَمَ وَهُوَ صَائِمِ That initially, he says in this hadith, hadith number three, initially, originally, cupping was impermissible for the one who is fasting. And that was when the Prophet ﷺ saw Ja'far ibn Abi Talib getting cupped whilst he was fasting. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, both of you, your fasts are broken. So hadith number three starts off by affirming hadith number two. Saying yes, cupping was not allowed. There's an example of when the Prophet ﷺ saw Ja'far ibn Abi Talib getting cupped. He said, both of you, your fasts are broken. So far, affirming number two. But then it goes on to say, ثُمَّ رَخَّصَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بَعْدُ فِي الْحِجَامَةِ لِلصَّائِمِ That the Prophet ﷺ then, afterwards, at a later point, allowed the person who is fasting to get cupping done. Later on, the Prophet allowed cupping even when fasting. And Anas, the one who is narrating this hadith, كَانَ أَنَسْ يَحْتَجِمُ وَهُوَ صائم. He used to get the cupping done to himself whilst he was fasting. So it's as though hadith number three is combining the earlier two. Because the first one showed the permissibility of cupping when fasting. The second one showed the impermissibility of cupping when fasting. The third one seems to combine them by saying that the hadith which shows the impermissibility of cupping when fasting, that was at the beginning of Islam. Later on it was abrogated by hadith number one, or this hadith number three showing that abrogation 
that the ruling changed and cupping was then allowed when fasting. So, that's your three hadith. Number one, telling you clearly the Prophet ﷺ got the cupping done when he was fasting. Number two, clearly telling you the Prophet ﷺ said to them, your fasts are broken for cupping when you're fasting. Number three, telling us that actually that was originally when the Prophet told them your fasts are broken. That happened earlier on in the years of Islam. Later on, a new ruling came saying it's okay to get cupping done when fasting. And that is possible that sometimes you have a ruling in Islam and then later on a new ruling comes different to the original ruling. It can change sometimes, that is possible. So what's the conclusion from all of this then? What is the conclusion regarding cupping when fasting? Why have you got to that conclusion? Anybody else? So you're allowed, you're saying, because the third hadith says originally it wasn't allowed, but then afterwards it was. So it was abrogated the impermissibility. Anybody else? Cupping, whilst fasting, what's the ruling? Authentic. Authentic. Legitimate. It's not allowed in Ramadan. It's not? So you're following hadith number two then? Ramadan, we're talking about Ramadan. So you're following hadith number two. When the Prophet said to them, your fasts are broken because they were doing cupping. So, there are two opinions. There are two opinions about this issue. Of course, one opinion is that it's allowed, and one opinion is it's not allowed. But the point is, we need to explain how those opinions have been formed. The first opinion then, which is actually the majority of the scholars, including Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, including Al-Imam Malik, including Al-Imam Shafi'i, those three not Al-Imam Ahmad, he takes the other opinion. So those three and many other scholars, the majority, their opinion is that cupping breaks or doesn't break the fast? Breaks it. Breaks it? Doesn't break the fast. The majority of the scholars, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa included, Al-Imam Malik included, Al-Imam Shafi'i included, They say cupping doesn't break your fast. How have they come to this conclusion? They've used hadith number one, which is in Al-Bukhari, that the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in Ihram. That part isn't relevant to us here, but the second part is relevant, because the second part of that hadith says, and he had the cupping done one time when he was fasting. So they use that as an evidence. That's in Bukhari as well. And they also use hadith number three, saying, look, okay, it might not have been allowed originally, but hadith number three is telling you it was abrogated. It is allowed now in the end. And that's their evidence, it's quite clear. 
Clear enough? The other side though, which is Al-Imam Ahmad Ibn Taymiyyah, Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Imam Ahmad, Ishaq Ibn Rahoya, Ibn Khuzaymah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, big scholars. They all take the opinion that cupping breaks your fast. They all say that cupping breaks your fast and it's not permissible. But the issue is, how do they come to that conclusion? When you've got a hadith in Al-Bukhari saying the Prophet ﷺ got the cupping done to himself when fasting. You've got the third hadith saying that originally it wasn't allowed, but afterwards it was made allowed. How are they therefore sticking to their hadith number two? No, the Prophet said to them, your fasts are broken. How can they stick to that in the light, in light of these other two evidences? We did this last year, they do that because when you eat something, uh, it breaks it, or when you extract something from your body, it breaks it as well. That we'll get to that in a minute, from these though, from the hadith first. Yeah. Sure, remember we did it last year as well. We we're going to get to that part afterwards. This in the hadith first, how do they take this position? How can they explain themselves in that position? When you got a hadith in Bukhari saying the Prophet did it, you got a hadith number three saying that it was abrogated and it's now allowed they have good explanations I think those scholars um, Imam Ahmed and the likes of them follow that, that explicit hadith and I think they have some issue with hadith 3 uh-huh. yes, they have some issue anything else your phone telling you? <laughs> 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 so they explain hadith number 1 first they've got to explain how come they're not accepting hadith number one in Bukhari saying the Prophet got it done when he was fasting? And they explain that because all of these scholars, Ishaq ibn Rahoya, uh, Ibn Khuzaymah, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Imam Ahmad, they were all experts in hadith. They were expert scholars in hadith. They and many of the other expert scholars in hadith examined that hadith in Al-Bukhari very carefully. They established that the hadith is it's sahih, it's authentic. That the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done whilst he was in ihram. That's how the hadith starts off. The Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done whilst he was in ihram. And then there's a second sentence as well. And he had the cupping done when he was fasting. They've examined the hadith in detail and they've realized that the original basis of the hadith, it's sahih. The Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done when he was in ihram. But then that second sentence, they've looked at that very carefully and all of the sciences of hadith and how you check and everything. And they've realized that second sentence isn't actually part of the hadith. It was a mistake by one of the narrators who added it on by accident. So the hadith is sahih, the original part of it, because it starts off by saying the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done in ihram. That's all the hadith is, sahih, Bukhari. The second part, and he had the cupping done when he was fasting, that extra part, many of the scholars of hadith say that's an addition that one of the narrators accidentally put on. It's not part of the original hadith. 
And that's why when you look at the same hadith in Sahih Muslim, Al-Imam Muslim probably came to that same conclusion because when he put the same hadith in Sahih Muslim, he only put the first sentence. He didn't put the second sentence in. He only put it down as the Prophet ﷺ had the cupping done in the state of ihram, full stop. He didn't add that second part, and he had the cupping done when he was fasting. Because there's a big dispute between the scholars whether that second sentence is actually part of the original hadith, or if it was a mistake by one of the narrators who added it on by accident. Many of the scholars of hadith say it was a mistake by one of the narrators. It's not established as part of the original hadith, which is sahih. It's an addition that got in by accident. So basically, that addition cannot be used as an evidence. So that's gone. If that's gone, you still have the problem of hadith number three. They've explained themselves as to why they're not taking that first hadith now. They're saying basically that second sentence isn't even part of the hadith. It's a mistake. The original part of the hadith, sahih, in Bukhari, everything, no problem. But that extra sentence, no. Many of the scholars of hadith say that. So they've explained themselves on that. They still need to explain themselves as to why they're not accepting hadith number three, which seems to clarify everything. It seems to say... Yes, you're right. Hadith number two is legitimate. That's how it used to be. The Prophet saw the two men, told them your fasts are broken. But then later on it was abrogated and the ruling changed to being permissible. That's what hadith number three says. But they don't accept that. So now they need to explain why they don't accept that either. And they explain that too. Because now that we're down to these two narrations, number two and number three. They say, hadith number two is actually a reasonably strong hadith. Chains of narration are good, strong. There are multiple companions who narrated that hadith, not just one or two, more like 12, 13, 15 companions who narrated that hadith that the Prophet saw the two men and told them, your fasts are both broken. Narrated by more than 10 companions, 11, 12, 15, something like that. And it's a good, strong hadith. Good level. Hadith number three. If you're looking at the levels of hadith. Hadith number three. Where does it come in? Obviously when we talk about hadith. What is the strongest hadith you can get? Sahih. What type? Muttafaqun alayh. If you get a hadith which is in Bukhari and Muslim. That's the strongest hadith you can get. Both Bukhari and Muslim have got it in their books. That's right at the top. Then just Bukhari, just Muslim, it starts going in levels like that. Top level is going to be, it's in Bukhari and Muslim. That must be strong. Both of them, not just Bukhari and Muslim as well. And then you start going down and down and there's levels like that. Hadith number two, it comes in somewhere at a given level. Hadith number three, where does it come in compared to hadith number two? Above it, equal to it, or below it? In terms of the strength of hadith number three. And we're not going to go into the details of how, but scholars of hadith have done that already. Where does it come in compared to hadith number two? It comes in much below. 
in terms of the level of strength, hadith number three comes in a lot lower, reasonably lower than hadith number two. It's not as strong as hadith number two. So now they say, you have a hadith which seems to show abrogation, seems to show that our hadith number two was only applicable in the early days and not applicable afterwards. And your justification for telling us that is this hadith number three you've got, which actually is not as strong as our hadith number two to begin with. So how are you using a hadith which is lower in level than our hadith and trying to override our hadith with it? That's basically what they are trying to do. Using hadith number three to override hadith number two and say, it used to be like that, but it was abrogated now. So they're using hadith three to override hadith two. The scholars who are on the second opinion saying it breaks your fast who stick to hadith two, they say, how are you going to come with a hadith which is not even as strong as ours and try to override ours? If you're going to try and override it, at least bring a hadith which is equal or better. But you're going to bring a hadith which isn't even as strong as ours and try and override ours. That can't be possible. They said that is not acceptable in the sciences of hadith. So they said in that case, you can't do that. What we're going to have to do then is examine these two narrations and judge which one is stronger and therefore take that. And when you judge hadith 2 and 3, which one is stronger? In the chains of narration and everything and the levels, hadith number 2. And that's why they say, that's where we're staying. Hadith number 2, it breaks your fast if you do your cupping. The majority of the scholars, they used hadith 1. <coughs> the other scholars have already told them, hadith number 1, the second part, is a mistake. So you can't use that. Then they're using hadith number three. The other scholars have told them, okay, but that hadith isn't as strong as ours, so you can't come and try and override our hadith with that number three. So they've crossed that out as well. In that case, all you're left with is hadith number two, and that means cupping is impermissible when you're fasting. That's how they've come to that conclusion. Majority of the scholars though, they say, look, hadith number three it is okay, it's at a decent level where you can override hadith number two. And they may not all necessarily agree with the conclusion that the second sentence in that Bukhari hadith was an add-on by mistake. They may have other conclusions, no, it seems to be okay, it's part of the original hadith. So they have those types of arguments and therefore they come to the conclusion that cupping is okay, it's allowed. Other scholars of hadith have come to the conclusion, no, that Bukhari additional section is an add-on by accident. Hadith number three isn't strong enough to take over hadith number two. So we're going to stick to hadith number two. It breaks you fast. That's how you come to those basic conclusions and different opinions. The majority, as we said, say it doesn't break your fast. But what you were mentioning... Some of the scholars have given some detail about this topic. They have spoken about it further. As Sheikh Al-Fawzan, he says, the scholars who take the opinion number two, opinion two, that cupping does break your fast, Sheikh Fawzan says that's actually a 
an appropriate conclusion. It is a decent conclusion that cupping breaks your fast. Reason being, he says, when your fast is broken, it can be broken in two ways. You can break your fast in two ways. What's one way of breaking your fast? Eating. You eat food, you swallow that food. So the first way of breaking the fast is by putting some food inside of you. Putting some food inside of you breaks your fast. The second way of breaking your fast is by not putting something inside of yourself, but by taking something out of yourself. Two ways to break your fast. By taking something in, like food, water, etc. Or by releasing something, taking something out of your body. So, cupping, which category does it fall into? Taking something out of your body. Because when you're cupping, you're taking out blood. And we know we're going to come to some hadith. Taking things out of your body can break your fast. For example, if you make yourself vomit on purpose. Imagine you're starving, hungry, pains in your stomach, cramps. You want to release that pain. So you make yourself vomit. Knowing that afterwards you'll feel a bit more comfortable. So you make yourself vomit on purpose. You make yourself release something from your body on purpose. Breaks your fast. Make yourself vomit on purpose. Then it breaks your fast. You have now released something from your body. Uh, and that is one of the ways of breaking your fast. Making yourself vomit, for example. Blood is the same type of thing then. You're going to purposely release blood from your body. And that goes against the requirements of fasting. Because when you're fasting, you're already going to be low on your energy levels. No food, no drink, etc. Therefore, it is not permissible to release or to take out further things from your body, which is therefore going to deplete, you're going to take down your energy levels even more. So making yourself vomit, you might feel a bit better, but that's even more gone out of yourself. Or releasing other means from your body which reduce your energy, then again, that would not be permissible. Uh, it would not be correct in line with fasting. So, when you take blood out and you cup, you do the cupping, it leaves you with your energy gone down. And that isn't suitable when you're fasting to make your energy go down further. So, uh, as Sheikh Al-Fawzan says, it seems like a reasonable conclusion to say that you should not get cupping done when you're fasting. Seems like a reasonable conclusion that you should not get cupping done when you're fasting. Uh, and this is generally what the Sheikh mentions. What about uh, blood otherwise then? If you're not allowed to remove things from your body, what if uh, you need to go to the doctor, he has to take a blood sample out from you? Does it break your fast? Scholars, they say, if it is just a small sample, one syringe, small, 
little bit they take out, that doesn't break your fast. But if it's a big sample they have to take out, two big fat syringes, they have to fill them up, you have to take a lot out, then that will break your fast. Small amount, it doesn't impact. But big amount they have to take out, then it will impact. So that is the topic regarding cupping. Two main opinions as you can see. The explanation of how each opinion got to its opinion as you can see. Then we'll move on from that to the next narration. An Aisha radiallahu anha أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم اكتحل في رمضان وهو صائم. This hadith is considered weak. But it says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم put the kuhl on his eyes when he was fasting. The kuhl, what is that? What do you call it in English? Is there a word for it? Is there, uh, who's uh, the English, uh, anyone have the English book? That's your homework. Find out. Is there a word for this in English? The kuhl, that black, black lining. No? No, don't say eyeliner. <laughs> English, not your first language. Don't say eyeliner. So somebody find out what you call kuhl. It's not eyeliner. So this kuhl, the, the black that you put around. Huh? That's the, for the Urdu speakers, there you go. So that you put around your eyes, it mentions here that the Prophet ﷺ put that onto his eyes whilst he was fasting. Hadith has some issue in terms of authenticity, but in terms of the meaning of it, there's no issue. Putting that on when you're fasting is legitimate. Putting the kuhl on, that would not be something that breaks your fast. And this is... Uh, the scholars, they mention as well various other topics linked to this. Eye drops, for example, then. Do eye drops break the fast or not? No. Eye drops do not break the fast because putting drops of liquid into your eyes, that is not a direct inlet to your stomach, it is not a direct inlet to create any nutrition in your body, it's not an inlet to your stomach, etc. So putting liquid into your eyes, that doesn't break your fast. What about, ah, even though the scholars, they say, ideally, if you can avoid it, then don't do it. If the doctor says, just put them in once a day, then do it in the night, after Maghrib, after Isha. If he tells you just once a day, then don't do it during the day when you're fasting. Just do it in the evening if it's only once a day or twice a day. If your medication can work out, the eye medication, the drops, it can work out that you don't need to do it during the day when you're fasting, then do it in the night. Better to avoid it. If it can't, he says five times a day, you're going to have to do some during the day, then it's allowed. What about... Ear drops. Are ear drops allowed? Again, it is permissible, but again they say, if you can avoid it and it's not a necessity, then don't do it. If the doctor says just once a day, then do it at night. 
If you gotta do it five times a day, then there's gonna be some during the day. Okay, it's allowed, it doesn't break the fast. Nose drops. Impermissible. Because nose drops obviously are a direct inlet to the stomach. They can be swallowed, it could end up being swallowed, going straight down to the stomach or some aspect of it going down. So nose drops are not permissible when fasting. Inhaler. It's allowed? Not allowed? Inhaler. Blue one, brown one. Red one even. The inhalers. Are they permissible or not? <clears throat> yeah. Medical condition, but when you're fasting, not all medical conditions are allowed. It's not food or drink or anything, it's just air. Yeah. No. It's just air. There's no wind. No, it's a taste test. When you so asthma inhalers or any other inhalers that are similar to them, they are permissible. Even though it's going directly that way, and there may be some taste to it, you're right. But there is no substance to it. There is a degree, an element, you could argue, but hardly anything that constitutes any type of nutrition for the body. It is not considered a source of nutrition. You could puff away all day, it wouldn't take your hunger away. It's not considered a source of nutrition in any way. It's a puff of air, basically. Maybe some element to it, but hardly anything. So the scholars, they say that puff of air, the inhaler for asthma, does not break your fast. But what about then you have these big, uh, especially Arab kind of ones where you burn that uh, incense, the Bukhur, the Oud, burning those and smelling those, break your fast or not? No. Smoking? Well, in this, this fatwa, we leave it there. So those, in, or even incense sticks, and then you have the big things, Lots of smoke comes out, put the big charcoal thing into it and it burns. Those things, when they burn, the big chunky ones, when they're burning and that fragrance is coming out and the smoke is coming out, you can see bits flying out from that burning chunk. Bits, there are bits in there, it's some substance in there. So if you are smelling that and those bits are going down and they are, they are chunks, small chunks, now fly up like ash. Those things, they go into you, then that can constitute breaking your fast. That is something of substance <coughs> going into your body. So they say if there are chunks like that flying out of it and you inhale those in, that can break your fast. Otherwise, normal, anything otherwise, fragrance and things, it doesn't break your fast. But that because of the chunks and the substance of them that can go into you. <coughs> Nasal spray is the same as nasal drops. Essentially, the spray is a liquid. Liquid goes into your nose. That is not permissible. Any other questions on those types of things? Injections. Injections, uh-huh. 
Injection. Is it permissible to have an injection when fasting? Allowed or not? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and no? What do you mean yes and no? Yes, it doesn't give you energy. It makes you fast. No, if it doesn't give you energy, no injection. Other way around. Okay, yeah, yeah. If, if the injection, in a nutshell, without going into any medical terms, if the injection gives you some type of energy, the, the, the injection, whatever they're giving you, has some nutritional value to it, gives you some energy from it, then in that case, obviously, it is not permissible. But if that injection is something that has no impact in terms of nutrition or energy, it's some other thing it's going to do in your body, your muscle or whatever is going to happen with it. No nutritional value, no energy source from it, nothing of that at all, then you can take it. That type of injection can then be taken. And that obviously you'll determine with the doctor, etc. Whoever's giving it first, you'll seek advice on what the properties of this injection are. Anything else? What about them pens what people have these days, you know, the way pens, the water one, you said it's not a negative and it's just water people like fucking away. Ramadan or without Ramadan, it's not, not because... Vape things? Yeah, vaping or like but saying it's got, like, don't take a sense in it, just like water vape. I've never looked into it. What is in these vape things? It's what? It has nicotine in it. No, some of them. Nice no, yeah, no, some of them. What is it? Mm. Mm. It's I know, I see, I've seen all the shops everywhere. We'll have to, uh, 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 I'll look into it. I've never looked into it. No, I mean, if it has nicotine and those types of elements still in it, and it has other type of elements that do provide some... Uh, you know, an effect. They, they create an effect in you. If, if those types of substances are, are in it, then it won't be permissible. It won't be permissible. So if there are substances that do have some type of impact, some effect on you, then it won't be permissible, that type of thing. It's, it's like, uh, well, to a degree, you know, that, 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 what they put in their mouths. Yemenis especially. The qat and that kind of stuff. Even I think in subcontinent countries they put something in their mouth and they chew it and it brings flavors out and it creates an impact on your body to a degree. Those types of things are not permissible. They're not full-blown intoxicants, but they're on the lines of it. They're in the same field as those things. Hmm. Blood transfusion. Blood transfusion... Uh, I don't know of a fatwa directly, but again, it would just depend on what happens in terms of your body and the state of your body and what impact that blood has on it. Uh, I would assume generally from these types of things, it wouldn't be permissible. Yeah, it, it's like the, if the sample is a mole, just a bit, then it's not allowed. 
Oh, you're going to give the blood, you mean? Yes. Okay, okay. If you're donating blood, yeah, a huge amount like that, then according to this, then that's not allowed. If you're donating it. I thought you meant if you're accepting it. If what? The second, if you are, you know, somebody is giving you blood, so it's going to That's what I was talking about. I assume it would be something that breaks so fast. But we need to look into that, see if there's a fatwa directly about transfusion whilst fasting. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. Mm. That's okay. Then you don't have to fast for that day. You can miss the fast and you make it up afterwards. That's okay. I mean, certain medical. We're going to get to the medical thing. When you have a medical issue, you're allowed to miss the day, or miss the week, or miss the whole month. A medical issue which causes you not to be able to fast, then you're allowed to miss. We're going to get to that, inshallah. Anything else? What about insulin? Injected insulin, I mean, is that nutritious? Or? Insulin for diabetes and things. Yeah. Uh, it's, a medicine. Huh? it's a hormone, isn't it? So I assume that it's... As far as I remember the fatawa on that, it breaks the fast. But we'll double check again. We'll double check again for next week, inshallah. You know, before the Prophet used to talk about flux of the rice corn, how the beneficial will they give? Could be your eyesight. That's what I'm saying. Could improve the eyesight, can mm-hmm. it? It's a, it's a sunnah the Prophet used to do. You can put it on around the eyes. It's sulfide. I think it's called sulfide. Sulfide? Yeah, like this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some people saying, like, you know, the uh, alien person, the Surma, they say, it moves your eyes. I don't know if it does actually. Alright. <laughs> Alright, let's, uh, how much time we got now? Ten minutes? Let's do one more hadith. We can do one more before we finish off. Hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu, qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, من نسي وهو صائم فأكل أو شرب فليتم صومه فإنما أطعمه الله وسقاه وللحاكم من أفطر في رمضان ناسيا فلا قضاء عليه ولا كفارة. This hadith now says whoever forgets whilst he's fasting and eats or drinks then he still completes his fast because that is Allah who has fed him and given him that drink. In another addition, whoever opens his fast accidentally, eats or drinks accidentally, then he doesn't have to make up that day. This is the basic ruling about somebody who accidentally eats or drinks forgetfully whilst fasting. The ruling is that it does not break your fast. If you genuinely forgot and you ate or drank, <coughs> then it does not break your fast. Your fast is still intact and you carry on for the rest of the day. You have to carry on for the rest of the day. You can't say, well, I've eaten now, I might as well just eat. If you do that, you're sinful. If you forgot <coughs> and you ate by accident, that doesn't do anything. As soon as you remember, then just carry on fasting. If you remember in the middle of when you're eating something, then just stop immediately. Don't carry on. If you carry on anymore after you remember, you have broken your fast now. You'll be a sinner. So you must stop immediately. What if you forgetfully eat something? Whilst you're eating, you remember, and you have a bite in your mouth. 
So you have to get rid of it. Get rid of that bite in your mouth even. Get rid of that and then carry on the fasting for the rest of the day, even if it's a large amount that you ate. So that is the ruling on somebody who forgets and eats accidentally or drinks accidentally. Similarly, in the other version it says here, you don't have to make up that day either. It still counts properly. You don't have to make up that day again afterwards. The last narration for today then. وعن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من ذرعه القيء فلا قضاء عليه ومن استقاء فعليه القضاء that whomsoever is overcome by vomit then there is no making up that day counts his fast isn't broken but whoever makes himself vomit then your fast is broken you gotta make it up making yourself vomit it could be physically poking yourself with your finger or something. It could be by looking at something. It could be by looking at something. By getting a picture of a dead rat up on your screen. Looking at something which disgusts you so you end up vomiting. Maybe it could be that way. could be by smelling something. Worse than looking at a dead animal, smelling the carcass of a dead animal is going to make you vomit. So... There are different ways you may end up making yourself vomit. It's not just physically poking your mouth or something. You may purposely go and smell a particular smell. You know you're quite allergic to or whatever. You know if you smell a particular smell, it's going to make you vomit. You've purposely made yourself vomit then. You know by going and looking at something disgusting or whatever it might be, a dead animal or rat, you're going to end up vomiting. You've made yourself vomit then. In any method... Any method, physical or otherwise, you make yourself vomit, then you've broken your fast on purpose. But if you are overcome by vomit, you're just not feeling well all day and you end up vomiting, then that isn't your fault and your fast can continue and it is still correct. That's where we'll round off for today. Next week we'll start on the uh, section regarding the traveler, the rulings of fasting when traveling. Also the rulings about medical conditions when you can't fast. And also the rulings for people who are very old in age and can't fast. Um, there is also the hadith about the issue of intercourse during fasting. And then the last topic is uh, if somebody dies and they still had days left to do of Ramadan. Imagine this Ramadan now somebody misses a couple of days. After Eid they die before they make up those two days then is their relative or the next of kin supposed to make up those days on their behalf or not? That is the discussion we'll have a look at as well. Uh, they are the topics we'll uh, start with from next week, inshallah ta'ala, approximately 7, 10 past 7. So we'll round off on that for tonight then. Do you have to make intention to make fast? Absolutely. That doesn't make a difference. If you made an intention to fast tomorrow, you made your intention, you put your alarm on everything, but then you were too tired, you just slept through and didn't wake up. Missed your suhoor, everything, you got up just, just in time for fajr prayer. Your fast for the day counts and it's legitimate. As long as you had made the intention, even if you got up late, even if you missed the suhoor, even if something happened, you got up so late even after fajr, you made your intention, the day will count.
intention at the beginning of Ramadan. That's a difference between the scholars. Some of them say you make your intention on the first night of Ramadan that you're going to fast the whole of Ramadan and that's it. You don't have to really think about your intention for the rest of the month. It's there from the beginning. Others, they say every day, every day you should have that intention for the following day. And really, everybody does. During the month of Ramadan, you know in your mind every day, okay, tonight, this, that, the plan, going to get up 3 o'clock every day, you check what time the close time is for tomorrow morning, you sort that out every day, so your intention is there on a daily basis. So you have to have that intention for the fasting. Thank you, they say the uh, fasting for the like, children in the beginning, uh, puberty, or they say if you don't hit the puberty, is it 15, what is it, 14 or 15? Yeah, uh, if uh, a child does not hit the signs of puberty by the time they reach the age of 15, then the rulings become applicable to them even if they have not hit puberty. <coughs> so it's either you hit puberty, whatever time that might be, 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever. If you get to 15 and you have not hit puberty yet, then still now all the Islamic rulings become applicable to you. Everything, everything. All these rulings... They become applicable at the age of puberty. If a child doesn't hit the age of puberty and they get to the age of 15, then at 15 for that case, everything, prayer, fasting becomes obligatory. For most people, it will be before that, 11, 12, 13, 14. Is that when the deeds uh, seem to be given, uh, get written? That's it. Once that occurs, they are considered as an adult now. Everything is done now properly. Accountability. All right, we'll round off there. Carry on next week, inshallah ta'ala, just about 7 o'clock-ish. Inshallah.